want to talk about um, 2019. And during the Q&A, if you have any questions about last year, you certainly can ask those. Um, we'd be glad to talk about it. But I want to talk about 2019. And to do that, I want to go back um, to, uh, well, about uh, 1,800 years, um, a long time, to May of 2003, or 203, not 2003, 203, um, the governor of Carthage, um, this is in North Africa, it was the leading city in that Roman part of Africa, scheduled a public event. It was a day of games, and by games we mean gladiatorial games. Um, and they were spectacles to be, formed in, to, to be performed in the city's amphitheater. And if you've ever seen, um, been to a Roman ruin, or you've seen these pictures of these, these were round, big round uh, uh, amphitheaters that uh, were used for a variety of purposes. But on that day, um, there were games that were to celebrate the birthday of the emperor's son. They were seated uh, by social status, so those who were very important had the best seats. Um, the rest were up in the rafters. Um, and so everyone was seated by social status and, and prestige. Far below in the bowels of the building were the victims, the animals, the gladiators, and the criminals who would soon fight to entertain the populace. Some of the gladiators and all of the criminals would die before the end of the day. And these were expensive. Gladi gladiators were expensive, but criminals were cheap. But it took a lot of money to put on one of these, so they weren't done very often. But everyone came gathered to eat and drink and to watch the equivalent of a New Year's Day bowl game in that culture. These games were wildly popular. They featured violent confrontations between gladiators and animals, gladiators and condemned criminals. Um, they were often, the animals and the, and the criminals were publicly tortured for the amusement of the crowd. It was not, it's kind of cage fighting on steroids. But on that day, something unexpected happened. The crowd watched as the criminals, whose only crime was that they professed faith in Jesus Christ, walked into the arena. Now that part wasn't unusual because often uh, they had the criminal had seen criminals walk into an arena before, but not the way that these Christians did. In the account that we have recording the events of that day, we're told that the Christians walked in confidently. They were not cringing, as the crowd had expected. They had spent weeks already imprisoned. Um, which gave them time to think and pray and plan how they would walk through that moment that they knew was coming. And they decided that they would march in purposely and joyously without deference to the governor who oversaw the event. Now, while they prepared the best they could, they didn't know what to expect. And from that point on, they had to improvise. Now, just before entering, choreographers, and believe me, they had choreographers for these events, demanded that they put on costumes. And in this case, they wanted them to put on costumes that made them into priests and priestesses of the god Saturn and goddess Ceres. But they refused. One of the victims that day was a young woman named Perpetua. She was a beautiful young mother from a respectable family, sort of an, uh, a lower upper class, so kind of a just above middle class. Um, she had a small child. Um, she was apparently lovely. Um, but she had become a Christian, and because of that had gotten caught up in this uh, sweep when they rounded up the criminals for this event. Now, typically in these circumstances, what we know from history is that it was kind of everyone for themselves, man and woman. But Perpetua and her friends had decided to head in together to coordinate their activities, and they decided not to fight back. 
Those who were watching were surprised to watch as this disparate group of people from upper and middle classes um, and lower classes mostly, men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, hugged and kissed one another, embracing and embodying a love that transcended the social barriers that existed at that time. And they were rigid social barriers. It's likely that many in the crowd that day were disgusted, not disgusted that there were Christians walking into an arena, not disgusted with the gladiatorial games, but with the behavior of these Christians. By an account that we have of that day, it says that there were some, though, a few at least, who were stunned. They'd never seen anything quite like this. We're actually told in this account of one soldier, one Roman soldier, who'd been tasked for several weeks with watching the Christians, and he'd been impressed with them during the time of their imprisonment. He observed that they had great power, and at the end of all of the events I'm going to describe, he decided to adopt the faith of this obscure sect. Now, how did I learn all this? Well, I've got a stack of books here if you uh, want to look at them later. But um, I took a class this summer. Many of you know that I had a sabbatical, and I did a number of things, including study Jeremiah, which is why we're spending so much time this fall on that. But one of the most enriching was a week-long course that I took at a seminary in Vancouver, British Columbia. And the title of the class that I took was Early Christianity in the Greco-Roman World. I've been interested in this topic for a while, but I hadn't read as extensively or been guided by a professor as well as I was this summer. And as I read these books, um, I was captivated by the faith and courage um, and vision of these ancient Christians, including the heroine of the story that I just described. And the question posed in the chorus was this. Why did a minor sect from an Eastern Eastern Mediterranean, despised and discriminated against, grow from a few thousand in uh, the time Jesus ascended into heaven to 20 million people 150 years later, 180 years later? Uh, Why was it, uh, excuse me, 250 or 280 years later? What was it that made it grow and replace the well-supported and financed religions favored by the government and the aristocrats. And there were many reasons. Uh, Historians talk about that they had fresh ideas. They had ideas that coordinated more accurately with uh, reality in ways that the religions of that day did not. They were zealous. They had a view of the afterlife that was attractive. They had a virtuous way of life that impressed many. They talked about their faith, but generally, it was not the first thing that they did. So what did they do? They lived out their faith. The sources we have rarely indicate that the early Christians grew in numbers because they decided to do public debates and try to win arguments. They didn't do that. In fact, they didn't write, and there are lots of writings by the early Christian church leaders. They didn't write any manuals on evangelism, how to share your faith. In fact, one scholar says that the first instruction manual um, on how to share your faith in the second century Um, and how to persuade a pagan to believe was written in 1970. But what they did do, and what scholars agree on, is that they decided to live a distinctive way of life that became intriguing to those around them. So day by day, year after year, decade after decade, for several hundred years, the number of Christians increased. And scholars, it's hard to get a a firm estimate, but the growth rate was perhaps 40% per decade growing rapidly over that time. Now, how surprising was that? Well, very surprising. The church grew despite tremendous disincentives, including laws and social convention. Throughout this period, there's persecution, even the possibility of death. While it was rare, it happened. 
And that loomed over the life of the church. By the way, one interesting fact is that the church, until about the time of Constantine in the early 4th century, did not just allow anyone to come. There were no seeker-friendly churches. In fact, you had to be interviewed and screened and often go through a year-long catechism before you were even allowed to go to church. And yet they grew 40% per decade. Now, although few Christians were actually executed, the threat remained a deterrent, and yet they grew. Why? What they did was patiently live out their faith that Jesus had called them to live, and God worked through them to bring many people to faith. Let me just quote from a few um, of the early Christian leaders and what they wrote about what they were doing and what was happening. Now, one, for example, is Cyprian, um, who talked about what he called the embodied life. That just means that they were living out their faith in tangible ways. He says, bearing it in their body, living the message visibly and faithfully so outsiders could see what Christians were about and be attracted to join them. And then quoting him, he says, we are philosophers, not in word, but in deed. We exhibit our wisdom, not by dress, but by the truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than by boasting of them. We do not speak things, but we live them. So it was a live your faith, make it visible kind of life, patiently demonstrating the gospel, the good news, to a watching world. Or another church leader named Justin, um, who said, when people see Christians living out, this is a paraphrase, uh, the sayings of Jesus, they're intrigued and wonder at the God whom Christians say motivates their behavior. Or another father, Tertullian, who talked about how Christians in their churches must live a life of integrity with no discrepancy between word and deed. Outsiders will judge Christians not so much by what they say as by what they do and who they are. And then this quote from him, We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. And remember, I've already said this, but it just bears repeating, that there were few incentives for people to become Christians in this time. Doing so could get you in serious trouble. Uh, You might be socially ostracized or, as I've already mentioned, worse, killed. And yet people became Christians. Why did they do it? Well, for one, the the existing religious options were dissatisfactory, and so it pushed many to explore new options. And by the way, I think there are parallels today. Uh, Many people today have rejected religious religious traditions uh, of all sorts and call themselves nuns or whatever, and they're finding life to be empty as well. And so it pushed these folks over time to pursue new options. Unbelievers were pulled toward Christianity because it addressed their concerns, it spoke to their longings, and it showed a way of life that drew them. So how did the Christians live this faith out? Well, through righteous lives, through ethical business practices, which they talked about frequently, in their commitment to sexual purity, in their commitment to the welfare of women, children, and the elderly, in their eagerness to give, the poor, give to the poor to take care of the sick, in their refusal to take life, the life of the unborn, the life of the newly born, to participate in gladiatorial games, to go into war as a soldier. It was ordinary Christians, not their leaders, who were primarily responsible for the growth of the early Christian church. They lived their lives in the midst of their neighbors who asked questions, who watched them. They served their neighbors, they prayed for them, they loved them. And this was especially true among women. Women were probably the primary means of proclamation. They were key to the spreading of the gospel. By the way, women were attracted to Christianity because it treated them with much greater dignity than they were treated with in the world around them. For example, Christians often, when children, baby girls, were often exposed because boys were of more value in their culture. 
Christians would go and gather these children at great expense to themselves, because remember, they're all living on the edge. To feed these children would cost them a great deal. They gathered up children and raised these baby girls. And one of the keys is they had the girls. And so some of the guys became Christians to get the girls, probably. But... But the reality was that women had greater dignity and more freedom in the church than they did in the pagan culture. And these early Christians prayed. If you read some of what I've read, um, and and there's much more to read, um, the early Christian writers spoke often about prayer. In fact, in their worship services, the time for prayer was much greater than the time for the sermon. So they had short sermons and long prayer times. And they believed that the life of the Christian, the life of the church, the well-being of the empire, and indeed of the world, depended on their prayers. They prayed about everything. Their struggles, to confess sin, to ask God for healing. They thanked God when things went well. And they believed that it was in prayer that they could access the power of God in their communities. They even prayed against the powers and principalities. In other words, they did exorcisms and other things that sometimes freak us all out. But they believed that those powers were real and they prayed against them. They believed that, it was, uh, that they had great faith and prayed fervently and faithfully because they firmly believed that prayer could make a difference. And because of this, they believed that they could take risks and live lives of great meaning and purpose. And because of the effectiveness of their prayers, outsiders wanted access to the power of these prayers that they heard the Christians talking about. Now, where am I going with all of this? Um, is this just historical curiosity? Well, as I came back from sabbatical time, uh, my mind full of all these stories of these early Christians and inspired by their example, I began to think about City Church. Um, If you've been with us for any length of time and you've come to an annual meeting in the past, you'll know that typically we have a list of tasks that we want to get done. So you look at 2018's objectives, for example, there are a number of different things that we said we want to get done. And so typically we bring you a list of objectives, specific things that we intend to get done during the year. They're usually associated with an individual on our staff or with someone who's a board member or or a key leader here at City Church. But in this year's packet, you will not see a list like that. Now, for those of you that are worried that we're getting soft, don't worry. We have our lists. We're not going to take a year off. But it seemed to me, to the board and to the staff, and by the way, the staff anticipated this in some ways. They were already talking about parts of this as well. So coming in, it felt like the Holy Spirit was sort of leading us all in the same direction. Uh, We uh, all began to talk about a kind of a little bit different way of approaching objectives, at least for this year. Not to take a year off on doing things, but to make certain that we commit together first to a way of life that we will live our lives together and in our community. To a life that honors God and inspires others. A life consistent with the life God calls us to live and a life that draws others to Jesus Christ. So when you look at page 13 in the packet, um, you won't find a list of objectives, but you will find some words. And let me just quickly take you through a few of these. At the top of the page, you'll see two, uh, well, four words that are familiar to you, love God and love others. But you'll also see an additional two words as well, the words live it. And that's what we began to talk about in our staff meetings and later in board meetings about how we would not just talk about loving God and loving others, but then also emphasize how we'll live that out. And so you'll notice that in recent weeks in sermons, we actually had a section toward the end of the sermon where I put when I do slides, and I didn't today, um, I'll put up a slide that says live it. 
And that's the time when we're going to talk about how we're going to live out what we've already talked about um, through, the, through the text of, uh, of the sermon. Oh, sorry. Next. Lee made these beautiful slides. Yes. <laughs> and I've, we should use them. There they are. Um, and so we're going to, this will be something that will be more common here uh, for us to talk about because we want to encourage one another to live this all out. You know, it's our conviction that our faith is more than just a set of opinions. It's a way of life. And so the question we want to ask this year is, how then can we encourage one another to live faithfully and godly, or faithful, godly lives such that others will see Jesus in us and wonder about the faith and hope we have in him? And so together, we want to recommit to some values that we talked about um, over the last couple of years, the forecast values of invite, extending to others the invitation Jesus offers to each of us to loving others deeply with the love we ourselves have received from God. That is to belong to a community of love. To become, by following Jesus as the Holy Spirit transforms us, heart, um, head, heart, and hands. And by serving, finding joy, and living generously by doing ordinary things with great love. And then we have three focus areas um, that don't really, uh, they're not objectives, but they're categories in which we're thinking about objectives, thinking about things that we can do, and they're listed toward the bottom of the page. And the question these attempt to answer is, how can we help each other live, life, live out this way of life that we've just described? The first of these is to focus on ministries and programs that equip and empower us to live out our faith. Let me just say that one thing that can happen over time in a church is you start doing things and then you just keep doing things and then you add to the things and you end up with a lot of things that are good, but maybe not best, maybe not the best use of our time and effort. So one of the questions we want to ask is how are what we doing, whether it's a program or a ministry or anything else, how does that help us achieve this equipping and empowering the rest of us, all of us together to live out our faith? So rather than pile on programs and activities to keep you busy, we want to focus on a few things that really work. And we'll try to do a few new things this year, and we may stop doing a few as well. But the question we will ask is, how does this equip and empower you to live out your faith? The second area that we want to spend some time on this year is telling stories that inspire and illustrate what it looks like to live like Jesus in our world. Now something that, and I'm as much of probably the primary fault the fault lies with me, I guess, is face stories, which we do periodically. They take a lot of work, they take a lot of time, but they are powerful, and we want to do more of those. Stories that talk about people coming to faith, people living out faith, uh, we want to have more of those, and that'll take some ta- staff time to do that, to, to help develop those stories, curate them, and help you tell your story. Another thing we want to do is use the newsletter to tell stories in more effective ways. So you'll notice in the last few weeks, we've tried to tell some stories. So we've had a story that Bethany contributed, one that Kara contributed, Dwayne's this week. And we want to tell more stories about people living out faith. One of the challenges is that I hear stories almost every week, and a lot of them we can't tell because of either privacy or other um, kinds of things. But any story we can, we're going to try to tell. And so if you have a story from your own life or the life of someone you know connected to City Church, let us know. We would love to have you share your stories with the rest of the community. The last thing on this list, our last category, is praying boldly, specifically, and persistently, believing that God both hears and answers prayer. We want to increase opportunities for prayer. Um, uh, Devin's working to help us um, revitalize prayer uh, at the end of services and during services. 
Um, we'll do periodic Vesper services a few times a year, and there will be more other opportunities that we will have to be able to pray, as well as in your own devotional life. Um, using, if you have not signed up to be on the email prayer, uh, the prayer team, please do. Um, it's an opportunity for you to pray for the needs of the church, uh, people of City Church. I just had somebody walk out of the service this morning and said, I put in a prayer request last week. He had a baby and something else in his arm. He said, told me um, an answer to the prayer um, that he wants me to share in staff meeting on Tuesday. You know, I really believe that the world needs what we have. I don't just think we're trying to persuade people to do something they don't want to do. I think that Christian faith um, comprises, encompasses uh, the best, um, most comprehensive explanation of human reality. We have the hope that people need. And we live in an age where there's a crisis of meaning. People don't know why their lives matter. And we deeply believe that people need, what people need most is Jesus. In fact, the point here is to see people come to him. While we'll lead with our lives, we're not going to shut up our mouths at the same time. And that's why we're committed to extending the invitation that Jesus offers us to others. Because we believe that in Jesus we will find peace, meaning, purpose, guidance, strength, and hope for an eternity that we find in Jesus Christ. We believe and really believe that those who are far off from God would be better off if Jesus were at the center of their lives. We also believe that we want to follow Jesus, that following Jesus brings abiding peace, hearts filled with love, a life of faith that sees everything, even our failures and our losses in the light of God's amazing grace. The kind of hope that endures even in discouraging circumstances. We talked today about, metaphorically anyway, the Babylonians that are at the gate. That would be freed from sin and the power to do what is right. Liberated from loneliness and anxiety and fear, to flourish and to become the people that God's created us to be. In, in, in short, the abundant life that Jesus talked about when he, came, he said he came to bring. To follow Jesus is to discover that he alone can satisfy our deepest longings, transform our most persistent failings, and heal our deepest pain. And the question we can ask is what more can we want? Now, I put, uh, or we put, a couple of verses at the bottom of the page that are illustrative of New Testament material. Both of these are from Peter, um, that describe exactly what the, new ch the early church was guided by. Um, you can see why this letter that Peter wrote was likely preserved. 1 Peter 2.12, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans. And by the way, that's not a pejorative term. That's a pejorative term today. But in those days, they're just talking about people that didn't have faith in Christ that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And then let me just close by repeating once again some words I read from Cyprian, one of the early Christian leaders, who said, we do not preach great things, we live them. 